Good evening and welcome to this Friday's edition of Stockwatch. I'm Zinati Guma and joining me to wrap this week up are Graham Kerner from Kerner Perspective and Roy Mutooni from APSA Asset Management. Thank you to the both of you for joining us. I want to start with uh, you, Roy. So starting off with the big news uh, on the macro front, the Fed minutes that came out on Wednesday. That market reaction that we got for me, I don't know if it's me, but it seemed like the reaction was not as pronounced as I would have expected. If you look at, for example, the U.S. markets or the global markets in general, really reacted mostly to the disappointing retail sales and factory production data that we got out of China earlier this week. And also the um, kind of better than expected results from the U.S. retailers, Home Depot and um, Walmart. I'm wondering how you interpreted. What's your observation of the market reaction this week? Thanks. Yeah, that, that, that's a very interesting question because I think it, it, it leads into what, what, what we think is going to happen in the markets. I mean, we're not in the business of predicting stuff um, explicitly, but I think the Fed minutes came out and basically said we are committed to um, bringing inflation down to our target range. And we will continue raising rates. And it also looks like not only will they raise rates, but throughout most of next year, those rates at their peak will remain in a plateau before coming down. Now, the markets always believed that we're probably close to the peak and will be very quick to start cutting rates because of what you're seeing, all of that bad news that you spoke about. So there's still a level of, um, I would say, denial denial in the markets that 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 you that the Fed is actually going to carry out this mandate. Mm. And I think when you look at what what um, what we expect Jackson Hole to bring, it's just going to say exactly the same thing. It's very important that the Fed brings down inflation. Why is that? Because the key components of inflation that continue to be troublesome are basically around unit labor costs. So unit labor costs are um, how much, how, much, how much you pay people relative to their productivity. Um, productivity has been declining, wages have been rising. Mm -hmm. That is as sticky as it gets. So if everything else comes off, oil and all of that, you may have inflation coming down to five-ish or, or whatever, but to bring it from five to two, you have to hammer on to that. You have to hammer on um, rentals, uh, mortgages, and actual real demand. So these are a lot of pain the market's not buying it. Um, and I guess it's, um, yeah, people taking a bet that the Fed will pivot. It's not looking likely. Hmm. Uh, Graham, on the point that the markets didn't really react in a big way to these Fed minutes, I mean, is that also maybe a signal that the green that we are seeing is still part of the bear market rally and not necessarily a bull market yet? It's a great question. I think it, if you'd asked me what what my take on the the market's reaction is uh, or was, I would say confused. I think okay. the uh, I think Roy unpacked quite a few of the the variables, but the reality is, you know, you've you've got to take a view on whether you think the Fed is going to hit the brakes too hard, um, or whether you feel feel that they, they they're probably going to you know, talk tough, but then maybe not do as much. And I think Roy was right that the market is in large part in, in denial. So Zanati, I think the, the for me, the market generally, if you take the US, I, I think the, the S&P 500 looks cheaper than it has for a while. 
And if you look at the forecasts for S&P 500 earnings, the market's still relatively optimistic. But to use Roy's word, there's denial here. I don't think we're factoring in how much inflation pressure there is going to be on on, on companies. So, um, you know, I don't want to be dire, but I think particularly the U.S. market is going to have a tough time because um, inflation, whether the Fed wants it and whether the market wants it, is going to be stubborn, not maybe at at 8%, but it's going to be stubbornly higher than the Fed wants. Um, and they're not going to they're not going to put the punch bowl back on the table uh, in in a hurry. So I think my sense is the U.S. markets are going to have to deal with a, a higher for longer than they want uh, inflation and, and interest rate environment. And against that backdrop, I think the U.S. markets are maybe vulnerable. But I think other markets around the world, including South Africa, are actually looking quite cheap, um, mm. relatively speaking. There's a question here. Um, is hiking interest rates really the best way to combat this kind of inflation? I've actually often asked this question and there has been a debate on whether this is the best way to tackle inflation that is exogenous. So I've often gotten the answer that maybe it's not the best to, uh, the best way, but it is the best tool that the central banks have at their disposal. Roy, I guess maybe a question that I would ask is that are we seeing the implications of the monetary policy tightening in any way yet? Yeah, that's a good point. So it depends on where you are. I mean, here in South Africa, we are definitely we, we have soft demand. We've always had soft demand. Um, uh, so, so it's quite clear that it's already starting. But remember, the rate hiking cycle only has an impact 18 months hence. 12 to 18 months. When you hike interest rates, that's when you see it. Then also remember that that's pretty much the only tool that that central banks have, um, which is hiking interest rates to head off demand. And it's only through signaling where they want demand to go that they can influence inflation. So it's a roundabout way. And I guess mm -hmm. that's why people ask, is this the right way to do it? Central banks need to maintain their credibility. That's one thing. That, that, that is, people need to believe that they will do their best to keep their mandates. Their mandates are largely around controlling inflation. How do you control inflation in a direct way? It's by using the one hammer that you have. That's interest rates. Interest rates hit demand. When demand contracts, that has a messaging to the rest, rest of the economy. And if you're lucky and people believe that you're actually committed to this task, then in aggregate inflation does decline. So it takes mm -hmm. time. It could be indirect, but um, it's the only thing that they have. In, 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 at times when they use this in an unorthodox fashion, um, the market hammers you. Look at Turkey. Perfect example. They thought, let's cut, let's cut rates and we'll see what happens. When you cut rates and inflation is rising and your currency is weakening, the market will come and hammer you and you'll have capital flight. So long story short, um, it's, it may not be... It may not. It may not achieve what. Um, it may not actually achieve what it's looking for, mm -hmm. but it's the only thing that they have. And and by them persisting on using it, they may actually reach the end that they're looking to achieve. And Roy, Sorry, thank you. Very roundabout way. No, and th <laughs> thank you for actually mentioning Turkey because that was actually my next question. So Graham, 
Um, you have Turkey's central bank, which um, either doesn't subscribe to the notion that uh, interest rates tame inflation or they just aren't committed to actually bringing it down, cutting interest rates by 1%, even though inflation is at 80%. Now, I was looking at the rand and the dollar. I mean, the dollar's really been flying while the rand has been sinking. And for me... As much as the Fed is still hawkish, but the in interpretation has been that it's mildly hawkish. So it didn't make sense for me that the dollar is flying this much against the rand. Could it have anything to do with the Turkish lira and the fact that it's, it's, it's in that risk basket that's making the dollar go so high? I don't know. I don't think the, most of the world cares awfully much about Turkey and their monetary policy experiment is theirs and it's... Um, you know, it's daft logic. Um, but in answer to your question, I think Roy unpacked it well, that um, unfortunately the theory is that you tame inflation by, by raising interest rates because you suppress demand. But I think to your point, point Zanaki, if, if inflation is driven by cost push, you know, it's a very, very blunt instrument. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that the dollar is strong because if you look at the yield on the, the U.S. 10-year, it's about 3 on 10-year German bunds, it's, um, it's around one. So I think there's also a sense that um, in spite of all the, the, the challenges and the fact that the Fed might hammer on the brakes harder than we, we, we want, the U.S. economy really has been the only game in town. If you look at what's happening in Europe, they've got a war on their doorstep. There's sort of policy confusion and, you know, trying to, let's be honest, herd cats from a political and economic policy point of view. So I, I think it seemed to be a, a good one. But, you know, the, the, the reality of it is there's an old saying in the market, and that is that when, you know, when, when Americans are, are, are fearful about the world, they invest back into, into the dollar. And I think that's a, a global phenomenon. Uh. And the prospect is you're going to get rising interest rates, particularly on the shorter end of the curve, and that the Fed will move faster than, than the likes of the ECB. Mm. All right, let's get into our stock questions. Is it still worth buying Tungela? Uh, are the current coal prices and demand sustainable in the medium term? I actually just want to bring in a tweet from David Shapiro two days ago. So he said, uh, you have about a month to buy Tungela if you want the dividend. Uh, the ex-DV date is 21st of September. Dividend is 60 Rand. Share price at the time was 3.11, but now it's at 3.26. Uh, that's a 19.29% uh, return, I guess now at about 18.4%. Um, so he added that prospects remain attractive. Uh, so as things stand, you could get a similar return next year. In 13 months, you could get 40% of your money back. Watch carefully. Strong buying is for dividend. Roy Tungela. <laughs> yeah, this one's been phenomenal. Um, and I think the mistake that investors could make is to start thinking it's up a thousand percent. Um, surely it's reached the top or surely that should play some role in, in my investment decision. Mm -hmm. I think the important thing here is to ask yourself, how sustainable are coal prices at current levels? What's the balance between demand and supply? And from Tugela's perspective, how much cash flow can they generate during this time? And how committed are they to paying that out as a dividend? So if I go through each one of those, clearly Europe is going into winter right now. You've got a shortage of gas. Russia is not selling them gas. The only alternative you have is coal because um, crude is a problem right now. Um, rather, the supply of crude is a problem. So coal 
at the margin is what people are using to generate energy. And remember, like one analyst told me, one very clever analyst told me yesterday, that the difference between load shedding in SA and in Europe is that in load shedding in SA just creates a little bit of an inconvenience in traffic, and we get upset. In Europe, in winter, if you don't have energy, people die. So clearly, what, 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 what we have here is sustained demand for coal. Mm. So from Tugela's perspective, if, if Transnet can ship their coal out, yeah. um, they're going to be shipping out into solid prices for a long time. Even if these prices come off marginally, they'll still be well ahead of where we were a year or two ago. So you're left with um, their commitment towards um, paying out that money as a dividend because that's a big attraction. Now, they've talked about buying other stuff and investing here and trying to increase life of mine, which is a little bit concerning. But clearly what you have here is an above average dividend yield pair, dividend pair, and you have above average prices that could be sustainable over a long period of time, or at least the medium term. So I, I think it's a reasonable play. I don't think it's overly expensive. I don't think it's more expensive than its peers. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to be confident and Transnet can help them out um, along the way. You know, the common theme when I, you know, I talk to my colleagues and other people about Tungela um, as laymen <laughs> is, you know, we understand that coal is really a good space to be in right now to invest in. But then you have these conversations that is it worth going into now with the share price of Tungela so high? And you have this what if conversation. What if I had entered when uh, on the day that they had listed on the JSC? Does that need to be a concern, Graham? But you can't turn back time. So um, <laughs> I think one of the one of the key drivers of coal, of course, is the fact that um, nobody has wanted to invest in the projects. Getting funding for for new coal projects is is almost impossible. That's a global theme. Um, so really, the guys who've got the resources, who've got long-life resources, really stand to make quite a lot of money, particularly on the short term with the, with the squeeze. Um, I have a slightly different view to Roy, um, and that is that I think the near-term outlook is probably quite optimistic, but I think the longer-term one has to, has to be um, a lot more bearish. Um, so as long as you're happy to sit very close to the door and say, look, I bought it at at 500 and I was wrong, I'm going to cut it at 400 or whatever the number is, because I think that's the kind of world we're actually in. And, you know, when we were chatting about the dividend yield and what, what uh, David was saying, I remember when the Satrix dividend fund was ETF was created um, quite a long time ago, um, I think three or, or four of the top 10 holdings were, were platinum shares. Mm. And this goes back, you know, to, to the heyday. And we know what happened to the platinum sector. Obviously, they've they've regained their mojo and, and things are looking a bit better now. But the reality is that for a very, very long, long time, um, you know, there were massive rights issues and dilutions. So I think I'm always aware, because I've got a little bit of gray hair on my temples, that um, commodity shares are cyclical and often the, the supply-demand dynamics are a little bit confusing. I think the other thing that I will say is you must recognize when you buy a coal share that there are many investors in the world that wouldn't want or would not or could not buy it from you. So your your investment, uh, your investor universe that you might sell those shares to one day is not the, the that of the, the general market. So that tends to also disrupt things. So I think my point, uh, Zanati, coming back to your question, is 
you know, if you if you missed it, you've missed it. You, you now have to take a view. Do I think they're going to generate 170 rands worth of earnings and they're going to pay all of that out? Yeah. I would say be careful as you look forward into the future. Uh, the world has to wean itself off coal. And you've seen the, the global and the corporate commitments to, to green transition. So it seems like it's a very far way off, but it, it, it's going to have an at-the-margin impact, I think, sooner than we think. Short term, what I'm saying is I think the outlook for them is good. Prices will hold. Mm. Profits and dividends will be good. But I'm not sure what the three-year outlook is. So coal is great right now. It's really the bell of the ball. And you had Exaro also confirming those results. So quite a short-term play. So then looking at Tungela versus Exaro, if you mourn to the long term, would you then rather be going into Exaro, which is also an iron ore and energy, and also they have plans of diversifying the product mix, uh, you know, um, in favor of renewable energy and metals, Roy? Um, yeah, so I think when you bring Exaro into the picture, you have to consider that, first of all, I think the, the, the bullish coal picture that both Graham and I are referring to over the next 6 to 12 months is around export coal. Mm. I think Exaro has predominantly coal that is domestically consumed, and that's probably ESCOM and that sort of stuff. Um, and then they've got iron ore, and iron ore plays directly into global growth, which is quite questionable at the moment, considering what's happening in China. So, so the dynamic is that different. Over mm. the longer term, I would say Exaro does not look on the surface as particularly expensive. Um, they have a solid dividend yield as well. You have to have the confidence that management make the right decisions with regards to these diversifying investments they're making in renewables and all of that. But to be honest, it's, it, it wouldn't be a bad play. Over the short to medium term, you'll get your solid dividend yield. Um, you have the risk that iron ore falls, um, falls out of bed. Um, but it hasn't, okay, it's doubled, but it's mm -hmm. not up a thousand percent for those who use the rear view mirror to guide their decisions. Yeah. All right. One more of the mining stocks. <laughs> Looking at the uh, PGM space, Implats and Northern have recovered somewhat since the July lows. However, Amplats hasn't. Is there a fundamental reasoning behind this? And what are the prospects for this particular PGM counter? Amplats, uh, Graham? Look, I must say, I, mean, I come back to what I was talking about earlier, and that is, you know, commodity shares are, are the, the, the business models and the earnings are volatile. Um, if you look in aggregate, they're earning the same sort of money that they did, but many of them have got lots more shares in issue. So, um, you know, there's, there's, there's the same amount of product uh, profit spread around. So, I th But I think in the case of, of, of Amplats, um, as you saw for, from a lot of commodity producers, I think the Amplats half-year results, if memory serves, were down 45%. Now, we may say, you know, the comparative was purple patch, but it's not as though, um, other than, than palladium and obviously rhodium, but, you know, platinum and, and some of the other metals haven't exactly shot the lights up. Um, I think Amplats, because of the, the transition that they did um, and the sharing arrangement that they've got, it's probably one of the lower risk ones. So I think maybe it's a case of, um, you know, there's been quite a lot of excitement in the last while, I think, about about alternative sources of, of energy. And I think that the, the PGMs are generally seen to be beneficiaries of that. 
Um, you know, we don't hold platinums directly. We hold them through through diversifieds. Um, I think there's probably a, a recovery due in in amplats, but I come back to what I said. You you sit close to to the door, so I think it's really for somebody who really I think essentially wants to take a bet in inverted commas on on the clean energy, the green energy transition, and the fact that not just palladium and rhodium, but platinum itself will start to to firm up. I think that's what's really necessary to give the whole platinum uh, industry a real boost. Mm. All right, let's get into NASPARS and process. So there's a question here. I have NASPARS and process. I don't see the sense in keeping them both. So which one? Roy? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, look, if, if I break it down, um, the underlying here is exactly the same. They have similar portfolios. They have shares in each other. The first question you ask yourself is, what do I think the outlook for Tencent is? Because if you think the outlook is poor or that Tencent is expensive or it's not going to grow, you stay away from the entire complex. It really doesn't matter. But if you feel that you like Tencent, I think the distinguishing factor now that they're going through all of these buybacks and everything to support the share prices and close the discounts is NASPERS is only listed domestically. Um, and whereas Process has a listing here and in Amsterdam and probably has a broader spectrum of investor interests that it can appeal to. So you probably might want to look at that one more. But, but in reality, I think just delving into what the investor was saying there, it's much of a muchness between the two. Um, over the next couple of years, you're going to have the buyback underpinning both share prices and the, and the direction of those share prices is going to remember what happens to Tencent. Um, I, I, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> um, on your side, Graham, so uh, Roy is talking about how much you believe in Tencent. Did the most recent results from Tencent move the needle for you in any way when it comes to how you're looking at Tencent? And in terms of Nasperis and process, would you be... Is there one maybe that you would like to keep maybe for the short term and one for the longer term? Um, I, I hear what Roy is saying and the fact that one's got a, a primary listing in Amsterdam and the other one is really South African. Ultimately, value will, will prevail. We've seen it um, from process selling more Tencent uh, with the, the share exchange. Naspers recently saying they may look to sell some process to and buy back their own stock to, to narrow the discount. So, you know, I, I, I go where the value is and, and ultimately I think the value will be unlocked. Um, I agree with Roy. I think... You know, you if if you don't like ten cent, well, then you have no place being in either of them. But if you if you believe in ten cent and the value, or if you're looking at it as an underlying value play, and you say, you know, what, I think there are other assets in the in the NASPAS process stable that that are worth something, and it's not just a ten cent bet, which I think is fundamentally true. Then I would go with NASPAS. You know, I'd rather have the fifty percent or sixty percent see through discount than a thirty five or a forty percent discount because I do believe. Over time, that discount will evaporate because, you know, ultimately, um, th that is what we've seen from the, the game plan. And then on Tencent itself, <laughs> I think Tencent reminds me of, of um, you know, when a, when, when a dog tries to, and I'm not calling Tencent a dog, but when a dog, dog, dog tries to sort of make as if, you know, I'm not around and they just hide in the corner. I think that's what Tencent and, and yeah. Pony Ma are trying to do. You know, they've, 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 they've really been um, in the sights of, of the regulators. 
Um, the authority, the government has had their, their boot on their throat. And I think Tencent is just trying to lay low, not make eye contact, not rock the boat. So I don't think they were terribly unhappy to show a slight contraction in, in revenue. Um, it was quite interesting that, that the R&D expenses were, were up in spite of everything. But I think, I think over time, the, the environment, the regulatory environment will ease. And Tencent, you know, we tend to think of it as only a gaming business. They've got lots of real world assets as well. And I think those, those will realize value. So um, I, I believe in the Tencent case, but I think their strategy of just staying out of trouble is a very smart one. Uh, there is a question here out of the banks that have reported earnings so far. Which one or ones have stood out for you? We don't have a lot of time, but I first want to start with you, Roy, in terms of how you saw the Standard Bank results today uh, recording um, record earnings. So 30 seconds for you, and then Graham, you can answer which ones have stood out for you so far. Roy? So, so Standard Bank, very similar to the other banks. Solid trading, ROE improved. Um, cost control very clear, good revenue and credit loss ratio is not a problem, and then dividend ahead of expectations. Um, and I think uh, Graham, Graham will reflect on this. This is exactly what you've seen across the other big four banks. Mm. Um, clearly, Capitec will be a different story, but solid results and really nothing to complain about there. Yeah. Uh, Graham, have any of those stood out for you or are you just seeing them all in one basket? Largely see them all in one basket. Some are better at certain things than others. But I think I think Roy's bang on the money. They're all cheap. They're all rebuilt their earn, uh, income statements. In fact, Standard Bank back to to record earnings. So mm. you know all of them are looking cheap. But I'd say probably the the, the one that's cheapest out of the cheap lot is Absa. But um, all of them are, are are looking quite solid. But I would pick Absa just for yield and the lowest valuation. All right. Uh, onto your stock picks for the evening, 30 seconds each. Roy? Yeah, so my stock pick today is Motus. Um, it's a, it would be a strange one because you think new cars um, and all of that, but in an environment where their core markets have actually gone backwards in terms of new cars, you've seen this business actually growing its earnings quite in, in, in quite aggressive fashion. That was because of buybacks and the fact that they have a nicely defensive, diversified um, business model. Uh, valuation is cheap, seven, seven times PE, 12, 12% free cash flow yield, 7% DV yield. You really can't go wrong with a stock like that. All right. And on your side, Graham? I'm going to go with Cup Industrial, uh, the uh, vertically and diversified in industrial company. They put out uh, a trading update a couple of days ago, talking about earnings 70 to 78 cents. Even if you take the lower end of that, you know, at four and fifty six, looks really cheap. I think it's well run, well placed business. Maybe this sort of cracker earnings results means that the base is quite high for the next few years, but you're still looking at great dividend yields, well run. Um, uh, yeah, so I'll go with Cup Industrial. Yeah, and then ma the market took that uh, trading update really, really well, I think, on the day, up 10%, if I remember correctly. Uh, but thank you very much, gentlemen, for your time and for your insights today. That's it for Stockwatch this week. Thanks to my guest, Graham Kerner, from Kerner's Perspective, and Roy Motoroni from APSA Asset Management. From me, United Guma, and the rest of the team, have a great weekend.